0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. When you saw or heard or or read about the Trump tweet, what was the first thought that went through your head?
1: Oh, should I even say it? (laughs)
0: Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, July 24th, President Trump tries to scare the suburbs. It would not be the first time that happened, but it also probably is not the last time. Uh, what am I referring to specifically here? And let's start with Tweets.
2: Tweets. So he is uh, trying to, in his words, protect the suburbs from his opponent in the November election, former Vice President Joe Biden, who he says is trying to abolish them.
0: That's right. And at the crux of this is a Obama era regulation aimed at desegregating various parts of the country. But there's a long kind of political history here when it comes to housing and race. And we have the perfect guest to talk about it.
2: And that is Karen Lacey. She's a sociologist at the University of Michigan, whose work focuses on the changing nature of the suburbs in the United States.
0: But before we get to that, let's start with the most popular segment in all of California Housing Podcastery. It is...
2: The Avocado of the Fortnight.
0: Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. A little longer. It's been a minute since uh, we recorded last.
2: Well, we're very busy people, clearly.
0: It's true, and I think the implication, listener, is Liam is busier than you, just to be (laughs) 100% clear. This avocado actually takes us to a few weeks ago, our last episode. And if you remember, Liam, we were kind of struggling for what topic we should focus on in that episode i don't know if you remember some of the options we were deliberating and kind of who came up with what
2: yeah i mean you're gonna take credit and that's fine for coming up with this episode because it turned out to be the most popular episode in the history of the gimme shelter so wow thanks listeners and thank me And thank you, Matt. You know, I think our puzzlement was what really led to that episode, which was what is going on with the housing market, man? That's right. If you haven't listened to it, even though it seems
0: like every household in America already has, but if you haven't listened to it, the podcast was about why the housing market in California wasn't tanking when we have the worst economy since the Great Depression, which I think is a question that, as you referenced, is kind of befuddling most, if not all Californians right now. I'm befuddled. So as a avocado-y epilogue to that episode, and thank you again to Skylar Olson, economist with Zillow, who was the guest on that episode who did provide some pretty compelling answers to made us feel slightly less befuddled, I'd say. More fuddled. Just for the record, the other ideas that were floated around for that podcast. So I wanted to do why the housing market wasn't tanking. I believe you, Liam, you wanted to read some of your own poetry. Uh, Okay. Uh, You do a lot of spoken word stuff around like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, where like housing meets spoken word. So. Wow. A lot of finger snaps. The finger snaps are a contentious thing, man. That is a generational divide that oh, really? I'm leery of wearing into. Yes, waiting into.
2: Huh, okay. Anyway,
0: avocado epilogue here. So a week after that episode aired, we got new numbers from the California Association of Realtors in terms of the median selling price of a single-family home in California. And what do you think happened, Liam? Did we go up? Did we go down? Did the new COVID-related Great Depression we're in actually start having an effect on
2: housing costs? Well, I'm staring at the answer, but I know this is You're yours. You so this. I don't know, Matt. Tell me. I'm a plebeian. We hit an all-time high for single-family home
0: prices in California. So as in June, the selling price of a single-family home, median single-family home in California up from June of last year. And Liam, I know what you're thinking because you're a hater, doubter, discreditor, never like to let anyone have their own kind of valid point, continue to deny other people's experiences and points of view. (laughs) You're thinking like... Our Zillow economist, Skylar, like she said on the podcast, well, maybe that's just because inventory was so small. We just had like two people selling houses. No one wants people in their houses now because, you know, the virus. But that may have been true in April and May. Not so much for June when inventory did pick back up, not to pre-COVID levels, but to a level of buying and selling of housing in California that- normal. Well, a little bit below normal, but not anything where you can dismiss Normal-ish. a price increase. Yes. Right. So I'm still befuddled and still somewhat dismayed because nothing seems to make sense.
2: So the, the answer is, was it a good time to buy a house? Assuming you are one of the lucky ones to maintain your job employment during this time, the answer appears to be no. Adding to the befuddlement
0: still, where the biggest increases in home prices year over year happened in California were in the Central Valley and the Inland Empire, which are two housing markets that are typically most associated with being highly correlated with a recession. Those are the markets that crashed and crashed really hard 2008, 2009, 2010, and that are typically more tied to the economy than, let's say, the Bay Area or Mm -hmm. Los Angeles so again more surprising numbers and absurd numbers I would argue
2: and I guess at some point we'll have to get someone else on the podcast to explain to us why this is going on
0: (laughs) Skylar was great I'd have (laughs) her on anytime she was great Mm -hmm. all right
2: let's move to the
0: main topic of the podcast this fortnight I wouldn't say it's completely unanticipated
2: but this somewhat out of left field well focus it's a major message of the president's platform and campaign yeah i mean it's part of the whole thing
0: beyond the tweets it is you think this is going to come back and be a a main pillar of his like attacks on biden
2: yeah i mean he you know it's part of his whole like biden wants to abolish things he's been talking about this relatively frequently for the last few months let's back
0: up so what did the president tweet which is probably the central question of the last four years but of particular relevance to our podcast
2: today So he tweeted that he wanted to announce to the, quote, suburban housewives of America, saying that Biden will destroy your neighborhood and your American dream, as opposed to him, who uh, now has released his plan, as opposed to, again, in his words, save the suburbs.
0: And what specifically would Biden be doing that would destroy the suburbs in Trump's view?
2: Uh, integrate them (laughs) Uh, I mean
0: essentially right I mean let's do this let's do tweet text and subtext so tweet text what was Trump referring to in terms of policies from let's say the Obama Biden era or what's in Biden's housing platform and then tell me about the subtext which I think is the more interesting portion of this
2: the tweet text is essentially removing a Obama era regulation, which was called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, which the Obama administration put forward in 2015, that sort of aimed to promote integration in all communities around the country by having those communities have to put forward plans for delineating what barriers may exist to integrated housing.
0: And just quickly, supporters of that regulation saw it as a kind of long-delayed enforcement mechanism for the late 1960s Fair Housing Act that kind of officially eliminated certain aspects of housing discrimination.
2: At the end of that line of cities delineating their plans, there was potentially cities could have lost some federal housing money had they not And so there was actually real policy
0: action on this, which was the Housing and Urban Development Department, headed
2: by Secretary Ben Carson, did away with the rule this week. It's gone now. And so basically local governments can have much broader latitude in deciding on their own if their policies are racially discriminatory and their funding would not be at risk. Okay, so that's the
0: policy pretext here. What is the political and racial subtext?
2: And, you know, it's not just this one tweet about <laughs> to suburban housewives. He's also maintained a few times the president over the past few weeks that Democrats want to, quote, abolish our beautiful and successful suburbs by placing far left bureaucrats in charge of your local dis- zoning decisions, warning that they'll be bringing, quote, who knows into your suburbs. Your communities will yeah, be un- who knows is the key there. So your communities will be unsafe and your housing values will go down. This is pretty thinly coded rhetoric that sort of speaks to the century long history of the federal government working with private real estate interests to develop and maintain segregated communities, particularly in the suburbs. And this sort of language about urban disorder and crime and lower property values sort of replaced the language that folks used before the Fair Housing Act passed in the 1968. So whereas no longer were you able to say or be explicit about your racial preferences, but instead you could play on fears about, again, crime, urban disorder, and lower property values to essentially say the same thing.
0: Were those fears more predicated on the specter of low-income housing generally or simply integration broadly, which I, I realize that's a very, very difficult question to answer, but do you get at kind of what I'm saying?
2: Sure, it is a hard question to answer, but I think essentially the federal government, by providing and supporting programs that only provided housing assistance to whites yeah. through the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, and then promoting suburbs as the American dream with the backyard and barbecue, etc., basically attached value to being in the suburbs. And you could only be in the suburbs if you were white, And again, this is this is is speaking in our story with Paige Glotzer, a historian at University of Wisconsin, who wrote a book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated. And she told me what it meant to be successful. This is a quote from her was to live in the suburbs. But the only way you could live in the suburbs was to be white. That helps to cement an idea that African-Americans were not there due to some personal failings when, in fact, it was decades of public and private segregation that was often enforced with violence. So, again, the idea of value is sort of inexorably linked with the idea of race and it's hard to dissociate the two i think the
0: subtext here which is as you reference very thinly disguised is if biden gets elected your home value may depreciate because people who don't look like you might be moving into your neighborhood fair recharacterization yeah and not just okay. your
2: home value, but crime will go up in your community. And there'll be sort of general disorder, you know, kind of playing to what's been going on in cities and fears of, of protests coming to suburban communities as well. What I find a kind of interesting about this is this kind of idyllic
0: vision of the suburbs. I do associate more with kind of a post-war late 20th century conception of where people live. And we get into this with the interview, but the suburbs have changed and there's different types of suburbs and the urban core has changed. The old race-based fears of people coming in from the city who were non-white into the suburbs, the dynamics of that are very different now in 2020 than they were in the 1960s or even 1990s.
2: It has changed. Yeah, it's a great point. Not only these suburbs are rather these assertions by the president wrong. They're from like a different era. And we Got into a little bit of this in the story, but just some quick facts to share. To be clear, individual neighborhoods across the country continue to be highly segregated. Whites are much more likely to live in white neighborhoods, etc., right? But the suburbs as a whole are not as racially uniform as they once were. So a good example, over the last three decades, the share of whites that make up residents in uh, long-standing suburban communities like the ones in the Inland Empire have dropped 20 percentage points. With whites now, less than 60% of folks living in those communities. And that's according to research from Brookings. And then also, I want to make this point about crime, too. You know, although Trump tried to suggest that affordable housing would bring more crime to communities, research says that there's little to no link between affordable housing and higher crime rates. Recent study from a couple of economists at Stanford, the same economist um, who did that study that was referred to recently about rent control that was bandied about during the campaign a couple years ago, they found that affordable housing developments led to crime reductions in low-income areas and had no effect on higher-income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And that's generally in keeping with boatload of research on this topic going back years. And to be clear here, I think that
0: even though some of the subtext coming from the president may feel antiquated. I do think there is a good number of suburban homeowners, including suburban homeowners in California, who might share those sentiments, but not maybe articulate them unless there's a city council hearing
2: to approve a low income housing development. And you do, you do hear it. Yeah. So, a couple examples to to your point, the story I I did about low income housing and cost to build in the city of Solana Beach, you know, northern San Diego Beach community. A lot of resistance you heard from residents there in public meetings about these were not the kind of folks, as they said, that that they wanted in their community. Quotes like, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but low income residents, you know, drive loud motorcycles. Where's the food stamp office going to be? I mean, just like all sorts of extremely thinly coded language about the kind of people that homeowners there and property owners there did not want in their community beyond that in conversations at the regional level, the Southern California Association of Governments. This is this regional agency that covers 10 million people in in Southern California, LA County, and surrounding counties. During the conversation about where growth was going to go in that area, there was a public meeting where elected officials in Santa Clarita, which I know Matt, I know you're familiar with, um, and, and and other areas, inland areas, talked about not wanting residents with Section Eight vouchers. Similar again, thinly coded language, not wanting those folks in their neighborhoods. So this happens today. Yes. And it's a mistake to think
0: it isn't. That being said, how much do you think this message resonates with... Voters.
2: So we get into this with Karen, but it is interesting to put in the context of the increasing support among whites for believing that there are disparities between blacks and whites when it comes to policing, supporting Black Lives Matter, and recent protests. There's a you know a, a pretty remarkable change of public opinion that we've seen in, in polls. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to housing and where you go home at night and where your kids go to school, there's a, a sort of a personal aspect to that where it may be different and again we speak to karen in, in depth about this point point. one thing and you sort of see this in general conversations we say a lot about affordable housing is that there are very few people who say no we shouldn't build any affordable housing at all the question is just wh- not wh- down the street what do you do when it's next to you yeah. yeah and you can sort of see that dynamic in a potentially a similar way in this case
0: let's quickly talk about affirmatively furthering fair housing the obama era regulation I think when we read stories about the Trump administration defanging a Obama-era regulation, the attention is more on just that, right? The Trump administration yeah. doing that. There is less attention towards, was this working, right? Was this regulation actually doing what it was intended? And there wasn't a ton of time for this particular regulation to develop, but I, I want to get your thoughts on, well... Was this succeeding in desegregating communities and particularly suburban communities that may be traditionally white enclaves?
2: Well, I think in a word like no. And again, we should make a note that Secretary Carson first put this rule essentially on hold, like saying they weren't going to enforce it in 2018. And this rule was first implemented in 2015. So there wasn't a lot of time for this program, particularly given that cities had to analyze their own processes. I mean, this was not a quick thing. And so there's not a lot of time for it to kind of come to fruition. But again, it, it was essentially a planning document. And we know from California's experience with its kind of housing planning system, just having a plan for more housing or more affordable housing or certain kind of housing does not at all translate into that housing actually being built. And so I think that sort of paper issue, something that could have hurt this effort as well. But in talking to researchers beyond just kind of the intent of it, researchers also, as researchers are wont to do, would like to get data about where these potential barriers to integration are. And so if you stop documenting these things, then that uh, level of information or understanding about what some of the barriers to integrated development may be, we just don't learn what they are. All right. Anything else on this topic you want to hit before we talk to Karen? No, let's, uh, let's get to the interview. We're here with Karen Lacey. She's a sociologist at the University of Michigan and expert in the changing demographics of the suburbs. Karen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So I'm hoping we can start. Could you take us through some of the ways that both public and private actors fueled the development of whites-only suburbs?
1: Sure. In terms of private developers, the, probably the most important influence has been the Levitt brothers who created a suburb called Levittown, beginning in 1947 in Long Island. And Levittown was really a response to the devastation of the construction industry after World War II. And the Levitt brothers really helped to revive that industry. And what they did was to buy a large plot of land, and rather than have construction workers come out and build each house one by one, they had all of the materials that you need to construct a house shipped to this large plot of land. So they had prefabricated walls, flooring, and they were able to put houses together relatively quickly and most importantly for the development of the suburbs cheaply. So I mentioned them not only because they were the first to do this type of work to create you know, subdivisions with cookie cutter houses where they all pretty much look the same, but they have also had a long lasting impact on the decisions that developers made. So the Levitt brothers were the first to introduce what we now think of as the model home as a way mm-hmm. of promoting homeownership. They build a model home first, they furnish it, and they partner with General Electric, and other companies to provide the appliances. So it was a way of manufacturing desire. People would walk through huh. the homes and feel, you know, I have to have this new GE refrigerator. I mm-hmm. should have a telephone on the wall in my house. Why do okay. not I live this way? And they were really the first to do that. And, of course, suburban developers are doing that now. When they create a subdivision, they start by building a model home and furnishing it pretty elaborately and allowing people to walk through it. And in addition to that, the Leverett brothers installed their own sales staff in the model home. So the problem for most homeowners or potential homeowners was that they really couldn't afford to buy a house. Um, before the FHA intervened, to buy a house, you really needed almost all of the money. There was no such thing as a down payment or a monthly mortgage. So the Leavitt brothers really helped to move that process along by installing their own sales staff. They had their own lenders. And they were able to develop a plan so that potential home seekers could secure a manageable mortgage. So they did some good things, which is what I started with. But they also had policies that contributed to discrimination in the housing market. Their Levitt brothers did introduce restrictive covenants. And those were agreements that were written into the deed of the home that said that only white People could use or occupy the home. So, even if you were a homeowner who didn't believe in racial discrimination in housing, if you wanted to live in another town, you had to sign on to that policy mm-hmm. written into the deed of the home. Mm-hmm. And restrictive covenants were outlawed in 1948, the Supreme Court case, Shelley versus Kramer, um, the Federal Housing Administration, and Many lenders taking their leave from the FHA continued to operate in violation of that ruling, just as Trump is proposing to do now.
2: Could you expand a little more on this sort of fusion of both public and private interest in developing and maintaining segregated communities? You know, you mentioned the FHA supporting what the Levitt brothers were doing when it came to segregating their community or restrictive covenants, things like that. Can you speak a little bit more to that, how the federal government kind of melded with private interests in this way?
1: So the FHA's involvement was actually pretty explicit. They were complicit in segregation of the suburbs. Their manuals that they distributed to vendors actually said that they supported homogenous neighborhoods. The support of predominantly white neighborhoods. And it was the FHA that enlisted the schema that the HOLC developed, where they coded communities based on desirability. So white neighborhoods were coded either blue or green, and predominantly black neighborhoods were coded either yellow or red. And coding of the red neighborhoods, of black neighborhoods as red, is how we get the term red lining. The HOLC didn't actually intend for their schema to be used in that way. They were just classifying neighborhoods in their minds. But then the FHA realized this would be an instrument to help to perpetuate residential segregation. And that became standard practice within that industry. So the Levitt brothers are simply doing what the FHA had suggested very strongly that it was okay to do.
0: So I I was wondering if we could fast forward a little bit to... Fair Housing Act and how that did and didn't change kind of the racial demographics of the suburbs.
1: So the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968 somewhat reluctantly by Congress. And the motivation was really that King had been assassinated and Congress was very concerned about rioting and how rioting would impact businesses and their ability to make profit. So Congress passed the ruling, that restricted behaviors of realtors and lenders. The realtors were not allowed to consider race in either the viewing of homes or inflection of homes. Mm -hmm. Lenders were not allowed to use race as they determined the terms of the mortgage. So it was a way of limiting the discriminatory practices that had been in place for all these years that it helped to create predominantly white suburbs. The problem was Congress didn't really provide a strong enforcement mechanism. HUD is supposed to enforce the Fair Housing Act, but they don't really have the budget to do that. And the enforcement has been uneven depending on who is president at the time.
0: Does that typically cleave along party lines? It
1: does, yes. Some administrations do more to raise awareness about the process of filing a complaint than others do. But it is also the case that the Fair Housing Act did have an impact on helping groups that had been excluded from the suburbs to be able to move in. So when I conducted the interview with Triple Chip Black, this is the book is a comparison of middle class blacks who live in PG County, Prince George's County, and those who live across the river in Fairfax County.
2: So for our listeners, in Maryland, Prince George's County, and then Fairfax in, in Virginia.
1: Exactly. And When I interviewed older residents in Fairfax County, they started talking about how as late as in 1962, 65, they weren't able to buy a house in Fairfax County. They had to live in D.C. because the suburbs had not opened up yet. But by 1971, blacks were starting to move into Fairfax County. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not suggesting Fairfax County is chock full of black people. It's not. (laughs) But there are Black families who live in Fairfax County now. They're often one of only a few families who live in the subdivision and sometimes the only Black family in that subdivision. So depending on how you think about integration, some people might say, well, there you go. I think there's integration.
2: Uh-huh. Well, how do you think about integration?
1: I think to really address Trump's issue with the comment about Biden destroying the suburbs, we'd have to think about what we mean by integration. The majority of every racial group, white people, black people, Asians, Latinos all live in the suburbs. So it's not true that racial minorities don't live in the suburbs, but it is true that they often live in suburbs that are comprised of Either exclusively their group, like a majority black suburb, or a suburb that also has other minority groups in it, what demographer calls melting pot suburbs. But at the same time, there are suburbs like Fairfax County where there are one or two black families in a subdivision. So it isn't the case that most suburbs are completely white as they used to be under Levittown. And and people of color are certainly not restricted from moving into Fairfax County anymore as they once were. So depending on how you think about integration, you think we would need to think long-term about that. You yeah. know, over time, will we see even more people of color moving into these neighborhoods, and that's been a very slow process mm-hmm. in Fairfax County, in part because the houses are so expensive, right. and there's so little room for new development there. There's much mm-hmm. more open space for housing developments in PG County, and the houses are also significantly cheaper there.
0: I'm curious <laughs> it's a podcast, so i if if we need to bleep anything, we will, so go for it.
1: My issue with Trump is you know he skates around issues that have a lot of nuance. You know, we were just talking about what really is an integrated suburb, so he's proposing to axe the a f f h right, which would mean that communities that really weren't doing anything to eliminate discriminatory practices would still be able to get federal funding. And the question is, how much difference will that make in terms of the forward progress that we've already seen uh, Mm -hmm. happening in suburbs, right? So I'm not sure how much difference acting the rule would actually make, in part because some of these processes are already underway. As I said, there already are people of color in the suburbs, he's pretending as though they are not. And also, hopefully, you know, he'll be moving on (laughs) and we we could reverse his policy. So, you know, in an ideal world, we've got only a few months of this. And I don't think if that's the case, that it would have much of an impact.
2: Yeah, but I think beyond the actual practical nature of whether the rule is there or not, the politics... Well, not beyond the politics, it's the rhetoric. I mean, him talking about like protecting the suburbs from protecting in quotes from, you know, crime or your property values may go down or sort of disorder. I mean, those appear to be pretty thinly coded race based appeals. Right. And those sorts of appeals been around pretty much after the Fair Housing Act passed. Right. They kind of replaced sort of explicitly race based conversations, too. But they sort of became codes for maintaining segregation in other ways.
1: Right. Right. Well, I think what Trump is really signaling is Trump is lamenting the end of unearned advantages for white people. We think of the suburbs as a place that is a reward for having worked hard. You've arrived and now you get to live in this beautiful Community. That's how the suburbs are packaged, and we kind of sold that to white people. But we haven't considered all the ways that people of color who have also worked hard, who also have enough money to move in this community, have been prohibited from doing so. So the complexion of the suburbs can sort of confirm what whites think about how we got here because we worked hard. The people who are not here are not here because they don't have a strong work ethic. And what Trump is trying to do is to amplify that sentiment. The divisions that you see are really based on dysfunctional sort of cultural traits of people of color. And that really masks the kinds of mechanisms that have helped white people to get to where they are. So I'm not saying there aren't any white people who work hard. That's not at all <laughs> the impression that I want to leave your <laughs> listeners with. But I'm saying there are lots of people in all racial groups who work hard. But historically, whites have been rewarded for that work, and Black people and Latina people have not. And Trump is worried that period is coming to an end. And so Uh most of his policies Uh are designed to put that kind of sentiment on crutches, right? (laughs) At least on crutches until it can heal and get back to work again. That's the vision of the world that he has. And almost everything about the way the world is working right now suggests that that those kinds of advantages are coming to an end.
0: Do you think that his messaging on this will resonate with the types of suburban white homeowners that I think he imagines he's directly targeting with this?
1: For Trump, suburban equals white. So he imagines he's talking to white people. Mm -hmm. And as we've already indicated, a lot of people in the suburbs are not white. So it's not going to resonate with them, I don't think. But he is. And again, he can be clever in a racist, scary way because there are people who, especially in these uncertain economic times, who are worried about how they're going to hold on to their house. Now, Trump is saying black people are coming. And so I think there is a segment of the population who will worry, what is this going to do to my assets? What will I have to leave to my children if Black people come? Again, you wondered how much Trump actually knows about history, does he know about history and just ignores it, or is he really ignorant about how these practices have worked over time? Because those of us who read about it know that the issue is not that a Black family came. That isn't what produces the turn of the the exodus of white people is that in addition to black homeowners, other people come, blockbusters come uh-huh. and that's to tell white people there's a black person in your neighborhood, you know, that means more black people are going to come. You should get out now before this turns into a completely black neighborhood. The catalyst there is not that a black person came, even though that's what it looks like. It's that a black person came and then blockbusters took advantage of that.
2: So what's interesting, I mean, you've seen increasing backlash against the president over some of his racist rhetoric in general. But I'm wondering if you think that's going to be, again, larger numbers of of white people supporting, you know, protests over the police killing of George Floyd, for instance, than you've seen in the past. But I'm wondering, do you think that that may be different when it comes to housing? And if so, why?
1: I do think it's different. And I hope I'm wrong because. I mean, I've seen the polls, too, that say there's an increase in awareness that Black people are treated differently by the police than others, and yeah. that's not fair. And so it's easier to see where the injustice is if it doesn't affect you directly, right? Uh, if it doesn't uh-huh. Uh-huh. affect your pocketbooks or the kinds of assets that you can leave to your children. But now you're talking about my house. Yep. And that's, <laughs> that's different. And so- <laughs> right, right, right. I want to be hopeful that we'll still see white people saying there's also discrimination within the housing market that has reduced the extreme residential segregation that we have seen for too many years across the country. I'm not sure that they can make that turn. I've seen a lot of the anti-racism books that are circulating on the Internet of books that people should read and that are on the best sellers list. But most of those books are not about how the country's neighborhoods became segregated. And there may be a reason for that.
0: (laughs) I'm curious whether you thought that the rule that HUD and Trump dismantled affirmatively furthering fair housing and Obama-era regulation, whether that would have worked to further integrate suburbs and other communities.
1: Well, I think we definitely needed the rule because as we were discussing at the beginning of this segment, when Congress passed the Fair Housing Act, it's not entirely clear that they were saying we should desegregate neighborhoods as much as they were saying segregation is sort of morally a bad thing. Uh, So an uh, acknowledgement of that. But if you don't provide the enforcement that would, create integrated communities, then you're not serious about fair housing. So I think the new ruling, the 2015 rule, was designed to say we have a Fair Housing Act. It doesn't have a lot of teeth. We have a lot of enforcement mechanisms here. Let's try to strengthen it so that even though we do see forward process on residential integration, we could move this process along more quickly.
2: But it it was just kind of like a paper checklist. There was no sort of, you know, mandate there or or would have taken a long time for any kind of thing that would have hit cities in the pocketbook to actually come true.
1: Well, it was really a way to first try to identify what are the factors that are contributing to segregation in this community. I think it would have been enormously helpful, not only for people who are hoping to move to a better neighborhood, but also for scholars who are trying to understand what are the factors that are standing in the way of Uh integration, uh right? uh uh And what's especially revealing about Trump's acting of this ruling is that he's saying we don't even want to know. We're not even interested in finding out what the impediments are. We just don't care.
0: What do you think would be a more effective tool towards promoting integration of the suburbs, ending single-family-only zoning or reinstating affirmatively furthering fair housing?
1: I don't think there has to be an or. (laughs) (laughs) let's
0: well just kind of elaborate on that
1: so the big threes in terms of segregation neighborhood school workplace and yeah, where we've yeah. seen mm-hmm. the most mm-hmm. progress is workplaces and we've gotten people to the point where most of them are okay working in an environment with people of color but that same sentiment does not transfer to their communities I'm fine working with people, probably when I go home, I do not want to see them and so you know one way is to focus on how did we get to this level of consciousness about workplace interaction, and can we reproduce that in neighborhoods? Can we reproduce that kind of sentiment in schools and so far, we failed at that. You know we can reinstate a f f h and, and all kinds of other local policies and federal policies, but you've also got to move people's heart to mind because HUD does occasionally investigate realtors for housing discrimination. And right. I, I right. interviewed realtors in both Fairfax County and PG County, and some of them mentioned that, you know, HUD will send out testers. They call mm-hmm. them testers. Scholars call them auditors who are volunteers, who are trained, and they're typically assigned identities that are the same with the exception of race. You know, you are a professional, you earn this much money, you have this educational level, blah, blah, blah. So everything about them is the same, except that one auditor is white and one auditor is black. And then they send them out mm-hmm. to look for homes to see if they're going to be treated differently. And that's how we've been able to see how much discrimination there still is in the housing market. But what these are still doing and hoping that they don't get caught is what some of the people that I interviewed were telling me. And in fact, I went undercover as a home speaker and experienced it myself in Fairfax County and also in PG County. But the problem is, you know, I'm undercover, so I'm already nervous. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not a good actor.
2: So what does being undercover mean? Like you, Were you wearing like sunglasses or something? Like
1: I'm pretending to be a home seeker. I was a broke graduate student. I couldn't buy, <laughs> I couldn't buy a dollhouse a doll at that point. But here's the thing. And it actually was alarming because I think we are underestimating how much discrimination there actually still is. So yeah. the guy who was working with me, white guy at one of the... The realtor? Yeah, he was really nice. So you think about races as people who are sort of, you know, they're going to glare at you or they're going to, like, you walk in and you try to trip you up, You know, you think they're going to be really mean. And he was actually very nice. He also gave me sound advice. Like he said, you know, you want to look for a home where the couple just got divorced or somebody died. So those are the really good buys. Well, that's true. Mm. But he also tried to steer me away from the neighborhood where I said I wanted to live. Uh, and over to a different one where there were more black people. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm a person who's read a lot of this literature, and at the moment, I'm thinking I'm a little bit confused. Like, is he yeah. or <laughs> You know, it is, I can see how a person who doesn't care as much about this issue as we do, in terms of reading about it and trying to stay up to date,
0: yeah. would come
1: out of that situation feeling like they haven't been discriminated against mm. at all. Did you end
0: up? like revealing or confronting the realtor and asking for an explanation as to why he steered you towards a, a more Black community?
1: Oh, no, absolutely not. I'm not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an, investig- an investigative reporter. about 60 minutes. You know, I went home and wrote up my field notes and then, I, you know, I wrote about it in the book. So you can read about yep. it, but I don't... <laughs> I don't gotcha. know the person's identity or even which office it is or any of that.
0: There wasn't a part of you that wanted to take off the sunglasses and was like, aha, I'm a grad student.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> I, was just hoping to, I was hoping to get out of that interaction without being discovered. I never even bought a house before at that point. I don't know about people who buy houses.
2: Where do you see patterns of segregations within the suburbs headed in the future?
1: Well, one of the issues that I've studied is the emergence of predominantly black suburbs but they're just uh-huh. basically middle class and if you mm-hmm. drive through one of the communities that i studied which is actually upper middle class if you drove through you wouldn't know that it was a black suburb these are mm-hmm. really big houses palatials that sit on more than an acre of land in BG county the community is beautiful you would never know the difference until You went up to someone's home, rang the bell, and people started coming out. So one of the things I've been interested in is why those communities are rising in popularity and why people who have enough money to move wherever they want would decide to live there. So that's one of the things I write about in the book. And then there are also white enclaves that are starting to grow in popularity. There's a journalist who wrote a book called Whiteopia which is Uh all about where these communities are emerging and why. And a lot of the people who move to these places are Californians who are trying to escape diversity. You think California is an extremely diverse place, so what are they doing in California anyway? But it's that the diversity is increasing to levels that exceed their tolerance.
2: So it sounds like you're saying the patterns that we're seeing now, you sort of see them persisting, which is that increasing kind of diversity overall or integration into categories of things like, say, the suburbs, but still individual neighborhoods sort of being highly segregated.
1: Well, the white whiteopias and the enclaves that I studied also have a class dimension. So mm-hmm. you're not only escaping diversity, you're also creating social distance between yourself and poor people. So we'd have to be attentive not only to what's happening around racial diversity, but what's happening around social class. And increasingly, people do not want poor people living in their neighborhoods. And the majority of poor people also live in the suburbs now, 55% Mm -hmm. of the poor population. So right now, it's possible, if you're white, to segregate yourself from people of color by living in one of these white-topias. How long can you sustain that? Probably not very long. Probably a generation, maybe. Two generations, probably not.
0: I'm curious kind of what you make of a trend that seems to have accelerated in the 21st century, which is I think we had an ideal of suburbs, particularly in the 20th century, as more high-opportunity places. But increasingly, as cities began to gentrify, you had younger white professionals moving back in to urban cores, and a lot of Black families then moving back out to farther and farther flung suburbs. So that would be like Palmdale, Lancaster in, the, in Southern California, Antioch, and, and Vallejo in the Bay Area. I'm curious what you make of that trend and whether you see that continuing and how that kind of develops going forward.
1: So there are different types of suburbs, which we mm-hmm. don't talk about really enough. There are suburbs that look a lot like cities in terms of the businesses that are located there, opportunities for work, and that sort of thing. So we really have to be attentive to matching up how these demographic patterns match onto different types of suburbs. There's a growing elderly population in the suburbs too, with baby boomers recently moving out away from central cities and also immigrants who are concentrating in the suburbs now. But the communities that immigrants tend to be concentrating in are not the same ones that baby boomers are moving into that would be an interesting if anyone who's listening a college student who's listening looking for an assignment
2: that's our goal with every podcast is to get <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um i think that's it for me liam do you have any other questions that's it for me as well karen is there anything else that you want to add or you want to emphasize it all or express to our a uh, very vast and influential audience?
1: No, I think we covered we covered a lot of information.
2: Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks, Karen.
0: Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. I am on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And again, a special shout out to our editor superb, Victor Figueroa down there in LA for all your podcast needs. Victor sent me a picture of him on top of a mountain, which he climbed today,
2: looking very outdoorsy, no beanie. I was going to ask that. I mean, if it's your calling card, you'd think on, a, on top of a mountain is like prime beanie territory. Exactly. And so I think
0: the image still works for like your general bumble game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Victor. But overall, I think you're better off keeping the beanie. I'll text you the picture, Liam. Thanks again for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with a boatload of news as the legislature resumes. Thank you.